Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The rebel militia could not drive the British from South Carolina or North Carolina or Georgia. So what happened was you have stalemate in the South. And that's when Green, and and that stalemate existed when Green appeared. And it was Green who broke that stalemate. That's author and historian Jack Buchanan talking about his new book, The Road to Charleston. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we have a very special treat, as our guest is noted author and historian John Buchanan. You may know the name John Buchanan, or Jack, as he goes by in this interview, uh, for his really seminal work on the American Revolution in the Carolinas, The Road to Guilford Courthouse. That came out about 20 years ago. And this past year, John has released the follow-up, The Road to Charleston. That's what we'll be talking about today. This is a wonderful opportunity for historians and for people interested in the craft of history. As Jack shares with us uh, the processes he uses in his personal life and in his professional life uh, to tackle this subject. As you could imagine, if you read anything in the Civil War, uh, you can write volumes on any one campaign. Uh, There was recently a book on the the Chickamauga campaign that was three volumes, each one 750 pages. Uh, we don't often see that when you see research in the 18th century, and there's a couple of reasons for it. Uh, one of them is, you know, between the two wars, the Civil War and the Revolution, there's a, a decidedly uh, smaller selection of resources, uh, firsthand primary sources to be exact in the revolution and the civil war, but that's an aside. But what, what Jack has done, uh, and it's taken him two decades, has given us really a two volume, uh, understanding of the war in the Carolinas. Uh, and it's really fantastic work, really fantastic work. Uh, I was recently in South Carolina uh, touring some battlefields and seeing him some historic sites. And and Jack's work really opened up that experience for me. Uh, Cowpens and Kings Mountain and 96, just the national parks, uh, really come to life and are really torn uh, apart, so to speak, analyzed with an expert's mind uh, by Jack in these books. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jack Buchanan. Jack Buchanan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Tell us about your background. 
Okay. Um, I was uh, raised in far upstate New York in Ohio. Uh, after high school, I uh, spent a year and a few weeks at Miami of Ohio. Uh, quit. Uh, a couple months later, in the fall of 1950, I joined the Army. Uh, spent a year stateside and two years in Germany, where I met my wife, and we married there. Uh, after discharge, I took the GI Bill and I went to St. Lawrence University in uh, northern, far northern New York State, near the Canadian border. And I was lucky. The the um, um, history department they had a stellar history department at St. Lawrence. Then I wrote my uh, senior honors thesis on the Nazi SS under uh, a German emigre scholar, uh, Andreas Dorpalen who uh, later was called to Ohio State, and he's dead now, but uh, there's a chair named for him at Ohio State. So after I graduated, uh, I decided uh, I didn't go to grad school. I decided I wanted to uh, I wanted to teach, and I taught world and American history uh, in a, a small village in um, upstate New York for two years, learned that I didn't want to teach, I went on to, I got a job at Cornell University as uh, assistant archivist in the collection of regional history and university archives, and I spent four years there. Then uh, Susie and I moved to New York City. I got a job offer at the old Western Electric Company, which made uh, the telephone, uh, uh, telephones and all telephone equipment uh, for the old Bell system. And I was the historical librarian for a year and a half. And then the job of museum archivist opened up at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I got the job, and I spent five years as archivist, and then the director moved me up to uh, chief registrar of the museum in charge of worldwide art movements. And I spent the next 22 years uh, moving art around the world, Europe, Asia, all over the place, and loved it. It was a dream job, but... I had in the back of my mind all the time that I was going to take early retirement, which I did at 62, uh, and do this book on the, uh, or books as it turned out, on the Southern Campaign. And in fact, uh, the morning after my retirement, I uh, was now at the New York Public Library uh, starting research. And uh, three years later, uh, or no, I guess it was four years later, uh, I published uh, the uh, the Road to Guilford Courthouse. So, and then of course, what is two decades later, uh, the Road to Charleston. Your first installment of the Road to Guilford Courthouse was released almost two decades ago. Why did you come back to this project now? Yeah, so so late. Um, First of all, I, I, after Guilford Courthouse, I wrote two books, uh, Jackson's Way, Andrew Jackson, The People of the Western Waters, and then The Road uh, to Valley Forge. Then I was going to write this book, and that was about uh, 2004. And my wife became ill, and uh, she was ill. It was serious, and she was ill for several years. I was her caregiver. And Susie took precedence. And uh, that's the reason for the long delay in the appearance of the second book. And Susie died about seven, uh, seven years ago. And uh, as I say in the uh, foreword to the book, uh, one of her final uh, uh, words to me were, uh, keep writing. Uh, 
and uh, after she died, uh, I buckled down uh, to finish uh, to finish this book, which I did. That that's the reason for the for the long delay. Those are the reasons. What prompted British officials to move the war south when they did? Um, the the uh, first of all, there was stalemate in the north. Uh, the the last major engagement in the North was the Battle of Monmouth, Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey, 28 June 1778. After that, stalemate. The British had had in mind a southern offensive uh, since 1776, and at the tail end of 1778, they, they acted. So there was stalemate in the North, plus France had entered the war in our support, and of course, French motive was revenge for the loss of Canada, and they had their eyes on uh, uh, Britain's West Indian possessions, especially Jamaica. And the British considered the West Indian uh, colonies more important than the mainland. So one of the reasons was, was to get forces down south, close to the West Indies, to protect the West Indies. And then the uh, the, the British had received false intelligence from Tory uh, royal governors in exile, uh, other Tories in exile, and also Tories uh, uh, in country in America, that the the loyalists were in the majority in the southern back country and would rise once the British army appeared and you know smite their enemies. So for, for all those reasons, um, in fact, General Augustine Prevost in 1779, he was uh, commanding in the South then, uh, wrote that uh, when, when uh, the British took Savannah uh, at the tail end of 1778 and early in the new year marched up country into the back country all the way to Augusta. And uh, Prevost wrote, the object of the expedition was to put to the test the often professed loyalty of its inhabitants. Uh, and, of course, the inhabitants uh, failed the test. <laughs> but those were the reasons for the move south. One of the things you talk about in your book is the politics of South Carolina, maybe some things you wouldn't see from the outside for a generalist. Uh, talk about the Rice Kings. Who were they, and why did they have such a strong grip on the politics of South Carolina? Uh, they they were the Rice Kings were planters, uh, and and they had made their money um, uh, with rice and also the tanning industry. In fact, uh, Henry Lawrence, who who uh, was one of the Rice Kings, later became um, uh, uh, for a time president of the Continental Congress. Uh, his initial fortune came through the tanning industry. Uh, the millions, millions of the hides of the white-tailed deer uh, uh, came down to Charleston, Savannah too, but mainly Charleston. Uh, some were tanned there. Others were just sent to England for tanning. Well, that's how Lawrence, uh, Lawrence uh, um, uh, fortune began in the tanning industry and later became a rice planter too. They had an iron grip and South Carolina politics. They were rich, they were powerful, and they were arrogant. And um, they, they uh, saw to the, to the peopling of the backcountry. They encouraged settlers to come in through Charleston, down from Pennsylvania, um, 
and and other other northern areas down to Pen- from Pennsylvania into the southern backcountry as a bulwark for them. Uh, a manpower reserve in the event of a slave uprising, and also um, they, they were between the Rice Kings and the Low Country and hostile Indian tribes to the west, especially the Cherokee and the Creeks. Cherokee and Appalachia, the Creeks in western Georgia, and what eventually became the state of Alabama. Uh, and and what they did, there weren't even uh, they didn't even allow courts in the back country. If somebody living in the back country wanted to register a land claim or any other legal thing, they had to go all the way to Charleston to do it. So they were an arrogant bunch, and they had an iron grip on South Carolina politics. Many of these Rice Kings had questionable loyalties, especially after the fall of Charleston. Could you talk about that scene in your book? Um, yeah. The, the, um, uh, first of all, there, there were a lot of neutrals. There, there were uh, Rice Kings who um, um, were actually loyalists. I mean, they, they were absolutely opposed to rebellion. And then there was a third group uh, who put property before honor and uh, signed an oath of fealty to the king. Uh, and um, uh, that, 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 that's the one group uh, that uh, John, John Rutledge, the wartime governor of South Carolina, um, uh, in exile after the British invasion of uh, 1780, uh, that's one group he really had it in for uh, when he got back and the fortunes changed. Yeah. So, so for various reasons, uh, uh, some people turned against the rebellion. Uh, and, and as I say, some, they put property before honor. Could you explain the socioeconomic differences between the back country and the low country? Um, well, they were mostly poor. Uh, and... Uh, they were looking for for, for land. Uh, some who came down from Pennsylvania, uh, they were fleeing uh, the the Indian raids on the Pennsylvania and Virginia frontier, and they came all the way down uh, into uh, into South Carolina and the back country of North Carolina too to get away from that. Um, they were simply uh, uh, looking for land and opportunity, um, and. Um, that that was their real reason for coming down, land and opportunity. So, How did the revolution fracture South Carolina uh, along those lines? Well, I, I, don't, I, I really don't think it, it split the colony. Uh, the Rice Kings who were for revolution, uh, especially, for example, John Rutledge, the wartime governor, uh, worked uh, closely with... Um, uh, with uh, backcountry leaders like Thomas Sumter, uh, introduced uh, Green when Green came down. Introduced Green. Uh, he, he and he and Green went to see Sumter. Um, so the the uh, fracture of the state along uh, along those lines really happened after the revolution, and I don't know an awful lot about it, but went on for decades um, uh, after the revolution. But during during the revolution. Uh, those rice kings who were for revolution, like William Henry Drayton, and backcountry leaders, uh, they worked in tandem. They worked in tandem. 
Nathaniel Green is an important part of this book. His name's in the title. Uh, what brought him to the South? Yeah, three massive failures by his predecessors. Uh, first, you have Major General Robert Howe. Uh, he he ran afoul of um, um, uh, you know the minefield of uh, political minefields in uh, Georgia and South Carolina, and then when the British moved south at that tail end of 1778, he lost Savannah. And uh, as a Georgia historian has written, uh, when he issued his report on what had happened, it turned out he hadn't a clue as to how this had happened. Between sunup and sundown, a British assault force became masters of Savannah. Uh, And uh, as I said, he hadn't a clue. Now, he may have had other things on his mind because he was also a serial womanizer. <laughs> and he was really not cut out uh, for, uh, for a command of that sort. Then you have Major General uh, Benjamin Lincoln of Massachusetts, a good man, a really good man. But he'd been promoted beyond his abilities. And he lost, uh, well, he failed to retake Savannah. He lost Charleston and with it, the only American army in the South. And then the third one, of course, is the hero of Saratoga, the so-called hero of Saratoga, uh, Major General Horatio Gates, who proved at the Battle of Camden against Lord Cornwallis that he had neither the skill nor the stomach for combat command. Abandoned his army and ran away. So you have these, you have these three massive failures by by these three commanders, and um, in it was September. September 1780, and this is after um, uh, Gates's defeat in August of that year. Uh, uh, the the very precocious 25-year-old Alexander Hamilton uh, wrote uh, to another uh, New York State politician. Uh, he said, "For God's sake, send Green," which Washington did, as he had intended, because wash, uh, the Congress washed its hands of, of uh, the appointment. And turned it over to uh, to uh, Washington, and he immediately appointed Green to go south. Three names that are synonymous with South Carolina, uh, Pickens, Sumter, and Marion, uh, are all able to garner a lot of support in the backcountry. Who were they, and, and why were they able to do this? Well, the, th- the three of them were natural leaders, uh, for one thing. Uh, now, uh, and uh, interestingly... Andrew Pickens, uh, after the British took Charleston and marched up country, he took parole. Uh, and it was only when uh, uh, a Captain, later Major James Dunlap, a Tory uh, militia officer, burned his buildings and crops that he broke his parole, for which he could have been hanged had, they, had he been caught. He broke his parole and became uh, one of the members of that trinity of, uh, of backcountry leaders. Uh, Marion, I, in my opinion, Marion, uh, uh, I don't use the word genius, uh, lightly, but if any, any, any three of them, uh, were geniuses, it was Marion as a guerrilla commander. Uh, he really knew what he was doing. Uh, one of, one of his followers once said, why don't we build strong points, hold strong points like the British? Uh, he said, uh, well, he said that would destroy us. They're good at that. We're not good at that. We have to keep moving. Uh, and then Thomas Sumter, who 
was difficult, uh, a poor strategist, a poor tactician, and of course, South Carolina Patriots uh, object uh, to my descriptions of uh, Thomas Sumter. I, I really don't like the man, but he had an uncanny ability to raise men, uh, even after, for example, his big defeat at Fishing Creek. Uh, Cornwallis uh, wrote later uh, that he was assiduous uh, in his efforts uh, to raise men and that he was raising men in the field again. Uh, so you have these three, they're, they're just, they're natural leaders, uh, and they had become known before the war, uh, to, uh, uh, their compatriots as natural leaders. Could you talk about maybe some of the differences between Green and these backcountry leaders? Was there any animus between them? Okay. Uh, Green, Green got along fine with Andrew Pick. He thought highly of Pickens. Uh, and, and Pickens cooperated uh, fully uh, with Green. Green had a few hiccups along the way with Marion, especially because he kept badgering Marion to deliver horses to him. He was always short of horses, both horses for cavalry and draft horses. Um, you know, in those days, of course, instead of trucks, you have horses and wagons to 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 uh, to haul provisions, and he needed he needed horses. And Marion, at one point, threatened to resign and go to Philadelphia uh, uh, because of that. But on the whole, he and Marion got along fine. Uh, Green went to see Marion; they mended fences, and they got along fine. He and Sumter uh, had a bad relationship from the beginning, and. Uh, in, in my opinion, it was Sumter's fault uh, because of his arrogance. His, uh, he didn't like to take orders uh, from Continental officers. And the argument has, has been made that since he was a militia commander, did not have a Continental rank, which he had resigned early in the war, did not have a Continental rank, then uh, uh, Green had no uh, authority over him. Pickens didn't have a continental rank either, and he cooperated fully. No, Sumter wanted to operate alone, uh, and uh, he resented uh, uh, Green over him. But otherwise, uh, Green got along fine with other uh, backcountry leaders, the Georgia leaders, Elijah Clark, John Twiggs, uh, James Jackson. He got along fine with those people. A big part of this story is the Battle of 96, uh, it's a defeat for the Patriots, and it's very contentious amongst the leadership. In your interpretation, uh, despite their finger-pointing, what really happens there? Uh, I would blame Green and uh, his, uh, his uh, military engineer, uh, Colonel Tadeusz Kosciuszko, uh, the Polish uh, volunteer. Um, they failed to cut off the water supply. Uh, and, and in fact, interestingly, right at the beginning of the siege of 96, uh, they established their first line. Uh, it was either 75 yards or 150 yards uh, from the Star Fort, uh, which was the, was the principal strong point of 96. Uh, and it was, it was much too close. That night, the British ra- sent out a raiding party, uh, raided it. Uh, killed a lot of the a lot of the soldiers, and uh, went off uh, took took their entrenching tools uh, with them when they returned to the Star Fort. Uh, then they did what they should have done in the first place. Uh, 
they moved back 350 to 400 yards to start their first parallel and begin the zigzag trenches uh, toward uh, toward the Star Fort. Why why they why Kosciuszko, who was the military engineer, had never taken part in the siege, but had studied military engineering in France. Um, and, and, and the, the French had practically invented the art uh, in modern times of military engineering. Why he did that, I don't know, and why Green... Uh, and Green was so well-read in military affairs. I just don't understand why they did that. Then, the key to taking 96 was to cut off the water supply, and that was the spring branch, which was in a ravine about 176 yards from the town of 96, which was also stockaded, had a stockade around it. They failed to cut that water supply. Uh, Evidently, they thought that the British could dig wells within their fortifications. Well, in the Star Fort, they went down 25 feet and came up dry. There was no water there. The, 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 um, uh, the water supply was the spring branch in that ravine, and they, they failed uh, to take it. And that's why the siege failed, uh, because uh, Lord Rawdon had gathered a, a relief force and was marching up country and Green had to withdraw. It was a water supply. The victory at 96 is somewhat of a Pyrrhic one for the British. Uh, why does it ultimately end up hurting them to win that battle? Well, it, it was that old devil logistics. Um, uh, supply and transport. The British previous to that, after the Battle of Hobkirk's Hill, had lost control of their lines of communication and supply. The, the rebels, um, either Marion and, and Light Horse Harry Lee in tandem or, or uh, uh, Lee by himself, had taken the, the, uh, the forts along the Santee and Congaree rivers which were guarding the lines of communication and supply. They had lost those. And uh, in fact, when Lord Rawdon um, marched to the relief of 96, and he got there, and Green had withdrawn. He wrote to Cornwallis uh, and said, uh, there are no provisions here, and we can't, we can't send provisions uh, to 96. And uh, that's why he, he offered to, to, to leave some troops and to move more troops in in case Green came back. Uh, but uh, the loyalists in the 96th district uh, had lost heart and they decided to abandon their homes that they'd worked on for decades and uh, go down to the low country uh, with, uh, with the commander in, uh, at 96, John Harris Kruger, and, uh, and his battalions. It was, it was logistics. That, that was the sole reason why they could not hold 96, the 96th district. That's why they withdrew. How does Green eventually turn the tide against Cornwallis in South Carolina? Um, well, his first move was uh, against uh, against all um, uh, uh, military doctrine. Uh, you know, never split your army in the face of a stronger enemy, which he did. That's when he sent Daniel Morgan west of the Catawba, uh, as, as Green wrote, to, quote, spirit up the people, end quote. And... Uh, that's when um, um, 
Cornwallis sent Bannister Tarleton against Morgan. Of course, you have the Battle of Calpins, and then uh, the retreat northward. Uh, as 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 Green as Green said, um, uh, or, or as he wrote, when Cornwallis began chasing Morgan and then Green, the breadth of North Carolina, Green called it a mad scheme, uh, and and. Cornwallis's army uh, was sort of uh, decimated uh, by the march and then the ensuing battle of Guilford Courthouse. Uh, so it, it was it was uh, splitting the army, and and uh, uh, Cornwallis was afraid that Morgan was going to move on ninety six, uh, which he really did have had no intention of doing, and that's when he sent uh, Tarleton after Morgan. Uh, Tarleton's disaster at Calpins and the chase across uh, North Carolina. Uh, that uh, that was just Green's masterstroke, really, in my opinion. Could you talk about Cornwallis's decision to abandon the state? Cornwallis felt that South Carolina uh, could not be held unless they could also hold North Carolina uh, because of... Uh, um, rebels coming from North Carolina to work in tandem with South Carolina rebels, uh, and also supplies uh, uh, coming down uh, from from that area. Once he once he um, he got into North Carolina, and you have the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, then he decided that uh, well we can't hold any of the South unless we move into Virginia, and of course that's that's when he makes the move into Virginia. Uh, he just felt that South Carolina was not safe unless he could move in and um, uh, and take North Carolina. And of course, he didn't have enough troops to do that. The British never had enough troops uh, uh, in in North or South uh, to hold the countryside. They could win battle after battle, except for the key battles uh, that that they lost up north. Um, but they could not hold the countryside. They didn't have enough troops, and the Tories were not, uh, who were in the minority, uh, just didn't have the wherewithal uh, to help them hold the South. What is the significance of Green's successful campaign in the Carolinas? How does it help us understand the war better? Well, uh, what happened in the in the South? The 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 um, the key. To holding the South was control of the back country. Uh, if I can remember this quote exactly, Cornwallis knew this. The British knew it. The Americans knew it, uh, because the bulk of the white population in South Carolina, two thirds to three quarters, lived in the back country. So you had to control the back country. Cornwallis wrote, um, uh, "Let's see, the, the control of the back country was absolutely necessary." Uh, success in the southern district depends totally upon it. Yeah, that's his quote. Success in the southern district depends totally upon it. He knew it. The Americans knew it. Um, so, um, and, and, and the British failed to put down the rising. However, the rebel militia could not drive the British um, from South Carolina or North Carolina or Georgia. So what happened was you have stalemate in the South. 
And that's when Green, and, and that stalemate existed when Green appeared. And it was Green who broke that stalemate with his maneuvers, especially sending uh, uh, Morgan west of the Catawba and ending up with the Battle of Calpins and the chase to Guilford Courthouse. Uh, and Guilford Courthouse, of course, Green loses, just as he lost all his battles <laughs> and the siege. Uh, he loses, but um, uh, Cornwallis wrote to another British general, I'm, I'm sick of marching around the country searching for adventures. He decided then, after, and he'd taken big losses, even though he won at Guilford Courthouse, uh, uh, he, he'd, he'd taken a big lo uh, loss in personnel. He decided then he had to move to Virginia, and, and uh, he said, uh, uh, that was going to be the seat of the war as far as he was concerned. Uh, he even wrote that uh, we should abandon New York and concentrate all our forces in Virginia. And uh, a successful battle, he wrote, may give us America. Well, of course, he lost his army at Yorktown. And when he lost the army at Yorktown, he lost America because that broke the will of the British establishment to continue the war. Jack Buchanan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady, for having me. I appreciate it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.